Kirsty Dench being shortlisted for Best Supporting Actress. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 9th of February. A warm welcome to Wednesday's Money Talk. This is Peter Lewis with today's business headlines. Hong Kong's employment ordinance is to be amended to avoid labour disputes caused by anti-epidemic efforts after the SAR reported a record 625 new COVID-19 cases on Tuesday. If employers fire staff for absences due to compulsory test orders or lockdowns, it will be seen as an unreasonable dismissal under the amended labour regulations. The government also says it's planning to provide a cash subsidy to people who have lost their jobs in light of the latest COVID-19 outbreaks. Carrie Lam said on Tuesday that 10,000 Hong Kong dollars will be handed out to each affected individual as part of the sixth round of anti-epidemic relief funds involving a total of 26 billion Hong Kong dollars. Meanwhile, the CE said there will be more help for specific groups of workers in the next round of the anti-epidemic fund. The US has seized a record 3.6 billion US dollars in Bitcoin, stolen from the 2016 hack of Hong Kong exchange Bitfinex. Yesterday, a couple were arrested in New York while they allegedly attempted to launder $65 million from the proceeds of the theft and they face up to 20 years in jail. The US Justice Department said last week it had recovered a record sum of more than 94,000 Bitcoin, worth $3.6 billion. SoftBank's $66 billion sale of UK-based chip business Arm to NVIDIA has collapsed after regulators in the US, UK and EU raised serious concerns about its effects on competition in the global semiconductor industry. When the deal was first announced in September 2020, it was valued at around 40 billion US dollars, that's the largest ever in the chip sector, and it would have given California-based NVIDIA control of a company that makes components for most of the world's mobile devices. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Sullivan of Outset Global, Carlos Casanova from UBP, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, U.S. stocks erased Monday's losses ahead of key U.S. inflation data on Thursday. The S&P 500 gained 0.8% to 4,522. The Dow added 372 points to close at 35,463. The Nasdaq Composite Index ended the day 1.3% higher at 14,194. Shares of fitness equipment maker Peloton jumped by over 25% as its chief executive stepped down following an 80% collapse in market value that has attracted active investors and potential bidders, including Amazon and Nike. After announcing the change in leadership, Peloton also said it would cut about 2,800 jobs globally due to a drop in demand for its products. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index jumped 3.9% after China's national team was said to have bought local shares yesterday. Shares of the ADRs of Alibaba listed in New York rebounded 6.2% and Pindodo surged almost 13%. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index was unchanged on the day. The UK's FTSE 100 fell 0.1%. 
Hong Kong stocks tumbled yesterday as uncertainty about the impact of the US additions to its export control list weighed on sentiment. The Hang Seng was dragged 250 points, or 1% lower, by a record 23% fall in Wuxi Bio. The benchmark ended the day at 24,329. The Hang Seng Tech Index dropped 1.7% as Alibaba extended its losses by 3.3%, slipping at one stage to an all-time low. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.7% to 3,453 thanks to a recovery in the afternoon session. Helped by China's national team, in Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinex slumped 2.4%, bringing the losses from its November high to more than 20% and entering a bear market. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell 1.8% to $91.31 a barrel after talk over sanctions on Iran resumed in Vienna. Gold climbed $6 to $1,826 an ounce. And one other commodity to note this morning, aluminium rose 3.3% to a 13-year high of $3,236 a tonne before easing back. Aluminium has risen 13% since the start of the year on the London Metal Exchange and is close to its 2008 record high, adding to global inflationary pressures. Government bonds around the world have continued to drop as investors reassess the outlook for central bank rate increases in the face of surging inflation. Data due for release on Thursday is expected to show U.S. consumer prices rose 7.3% from a year ago, a four-decade high. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield rose five basis points to 1.97%. That's the highest level since November 2019. And bond yields also climbed in the Eurozone, UK, Japan, Canada and Brazil, ahead of that U.S. inflation report. In the currency markets, the euro is trading at $1.14.2. The greenback is worth 115.5 Japanese yen. Sterling is trading at $1.35.5 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 56 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.36 and a half versus the dollar in offshore markets this morning. And Bitcoin is at $44,000 this morning. Around Asian stock markets, they're all trending firmly higher. The SX200 in Australia up a third of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 up 0.1%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea also up 0.1%. And the rebound in U.S. Chinese listed shares is ex- rebound in U.S. listed Chinese shares is expected to give a big boost to Hong Kong stocks at the open this morning. The Hang Seng is projected to open 450 points higher at around 24,780. It's 8.10 and time to welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director of Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at Union Boncare. Privé, morning to you, Carlos. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., we find our international economics correspondent, as we always do on a Wednesday morning, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. <laughs> Good morning, Peter. 
So let me just remind you once again of some of these changes that are going on in Hong Kong. The employment ordinance is going to be amended to avoid labour disputes, which are caused by anti-epidemic efforts. Yesterday, the SAR reported a record 625 new COVID-19 cases. If employers fire staff for absences due to compulsory test orders or lockdowns, it will be seen as unreasonable dismissal under the amended labour regulations. The government's also planning to provide a cash subsidy to people who have lost their jobs. Carrie Lam said yesterday that 10,000 Hong Kong dollars will be handed out to each affected individual. And the CE said there will be more help for specific groups of workers in the next round of the anti-epidemic fund. Cleaners, security guards and those working with other high-risk jobs such as airport freight workers will also be getting $10,000 in subsidies to be paid across five months. And sectors which were already eligible for previous rounds of subsidies such as operators of restaurants, gyms and beauty parlours as well as affected individuals will also get new money from the new round of relief fund. And so Andrew, let me kick off with you and get um, your reaction to that. First of all, um, Ten thousand dollars to be handed out uh, to each individual who have uh, who have lost their jobs. It sounds like we're moving a little bit towards having none, no sort of unemployment scheme to at least something at the moment. So presumably this is good news. Well, it's slightly good news, but I think the real worry is that a lot of those jobs that are you know temporarily lost will be permanently lost because the companies you know operating those services just will be uh, out of business, and I think that's mm. going to be a longer term problem. Um, and that's that's just one of those economic hardships that the government policy is going to impose on Hong Kong people. And do you think, um, though, that some of the measures that they are taking, like for example, amending the employment ordinance to try and protect people? people from losing their jobs, although it doesn't protect you if you get fired, um, if you object to having the vaccine. But uh, what, what do you think of that? Well, I think, yeah, I, I don't think it's really going to solve the problem at all. I mean, uh, she's saying that our basic problem is the elderly aren't getting vaccinated and that this isn't going to address that issue and that seems to be their major issue. So um, I think we'd, we'd have done a lot better if we'd uh, linked giving the subsidies to being vaccinated um, as a sort of, uh, as, as we saw the Americans did. Carlos, what are your thoughts? Well, it's um, certainly better than having no subsidy. However, um, it, it is um, rather small in comparison to the economic cost of the latest round of measures, which are the strictest um, ever to be imposed in Hong Kong. Um, and so, it, you know, I believe that, unfortunately, um, it is going to translate into a shift towards structurally higher unemployment, but also structurally lower GDP growth. And what do you think the cost to the economy is going to be of this? Well, I, our previous um, GDP growth forecast for 2022 was 2.5%, which was slightly below consensus. But to be frank, I do not see how the economy is going to expand in the first quarter or potentially in the second quarter, certainly not in sequential terms. So we are going to see a recession in Hong Kong in the first half of the year, and that should exert significant downside pressure um, on growth. And uh, Chief Executive has said that you know growth will not be her priority this year. She's going to prioritize the healthcare response. Um, so you know a lot of the measures that are being put in place are not going to safeguard economic activity, which points to an even stronger recession than expected. I think the consensus hasn't fully priced that in yet. 
Barry, if we if we compare Hong Kong to the the US, and maybe it's not strictly a fair comparison, but nevertheless, over in the US, you seem to be living with uh, this this pandemic now. The economy seems to be doing okay. We had that stellar jobs report um, on Friday, although it was boosted by a lot of seasonal adjustments. But nevertheless, this this latest wave of Omicron in the US doesn't really seem to be affecting employers, hiring, or the economy overall. Yes, you're right. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And if the Omicron is now coming under control, I think uh, the other part of what you said is correct. And that is we are moving back towards normality. We're seeing some of the mask mandates for children being lifted. Two states, New Jersey, Delaware, one more has gone ahead with that. And we're seeing much more activity. It's not to say that things are back to normal, but clearly mm -hmm. people have decided that uh, absent a new strain or a recurrence of something we've already had, we're going to move towards moving through this. There's, there's a consensus that you see across the country, even in California. And, and do you know, what, what is the vaccination rate in the US? I think we're still at around 75%. Mm. So uh, actually, we're, we're better vaccinated here. So Andrew and Carlos, it begs the question, you know, Carrie Lam is focusing on the healthcare aspect. Do we have the wrong strategy here? Should we be focusing more on the economic aspects? And also maybe should we be trying to move away now from this zero COVID strategy to something uh, that is more getting us towards living with the virus? I would hope that we would do, but I think uh, you know our policy is very much in line with that that's uh, decreed from China. Uh, and uh, if if Hong Kong was to open up because we were living with it, then that would probably prompt questions in China as to why they weren't. Um, and that that I think would cause an embarrassment to the government, and that that uh, that is not going to happen this year as uh, Z you know moves forward. But we are, we do have one country, two systems. So presumably, there's no reason why we couldn't operate a different system for for dealing with COVID to the mainland. Well, in theory, that's true. I mean, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen in practice. I think, you know, we, we've you know, China wants to. Uh, it's it's aware of the limitations of its vaccine program. It, it wants to develop its own mRNA type of. Uh, uh, vaccine program. Uh, it doesn't want to be seen to be having to, uh, you know, accept you know the uh, the technology from the West. It wants to do it itself, and it wants to be able to you know, promote that side of of its economy. Um, and to be fair, I mean, I think the, the policy here is wrong. I mean, you know, Carrie Lam is very worried about the elderly. Um, but I think, as uh, one of the doctors pointed out on your show a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, a lot of the elderly don't go out that much and their immune systems are all already partly compromised. So I think we really ought to be you know, looking at how we can uh, you know, better address those, you know, those in need, which is, which is the main thrust of a lot of other countries' um, policies. If you look at South Korea, they, you know, they've gone for this mass testing, but realised you know, they've got to really focus on those that are you know, in real need. So sending patients that don't show any symptoms to hospital will overload the system. So you know, maybe you, we need to you know, rethink that part of the strategy. Carlos, what, what do you think? Do you think maybe do we have the right strategy or do you think we need one that takes into account more the economic aspects of these lockdowns and, and these restrictions and maybe also the business requirements as well? I think there's a very um, real reason for implementing this strategy in Hong Kong. As um, Andrew was saying, there's um, almost 500,000 people over 70 or 
uh, 80% of that demographic that has not yet been vaccinated. So in the um, case of an outbreak of COVID in Hong Kong, that would overwhelm the healthcare services, as we have seen uh, in other parts of the world. Um, so they are right to be focusing on you know, safeguarding the uh, health and safety of the elderly population, but they are going about it in the wrong way by focusing on measures um, to reduce the spread of COVID and um, incur economic damage on the economy uh, versus um, focusing on managing the increase in hospitalizations and uh, the vaccination uh, campaign amongst the population over 70. Because if you look at people that are eligible for vaccination under the age of 70, um, the vaccination rate in Hong Kong is actually fairly high. So it's a really unfair cost for the rest of us to burden. And so the government should be pragmatic about how they're going about um, their COVID policies um, to make sure that they are not um, you know, crippling the economy for no reason. Um, and, and at the same time, they're, they're safeguarding the elderly in a way that's effective, because I don't know if the current strategy will do much um, for them uh, to get vaccinated. Okay, let's switch to uh, U.S.-China trade. The U.S. Commerce Department said this week it's adding 33 Chinese companies to the unverified list which is subjected to stricter export controls. Um, U.S. companies seeking to export to entities on the list must obtain a license uh, to do so. One of the companies added to the list, as we heard earlier, Wuxi Biologics, plunged 23% in Hong Kong before its shares were suspended. Barry, could you clarify what this unverified list actually is? Because there seems to be some confusion here about what this means. Well, I think there's a lot of confusion here as well. But... I think uh, I'll take this shot at it, Peter. You've got now a total of 175 companies that are on that unverified list. That means that the United States Commerce Department has tried to find out the ownership structure. They have tried to find out links to the Chinese military. They have tried to see if they're stealing United States technology. They put all these things together, and when they can't find a satisfactory answer, they put it on the list. The list obviously is growing. It restrains United States exports, but it's also uh, something that is going to, I think, obviously make things more difficult and cause a reaction. I mean, we've seen that with Hytera uh, in Shenzhen because uh, this was on the list. Uh, mm -hmm. This was a case that's gone on seven years about stealing Motorola technology. And uh, it gets worse and worse. I mean, we're, we're in the midst of a trade war. Could these companies be removed from the list then once uh, their, their, their checks have been done? Yes, theoretically, that would be the case. But there's been no indication that any of these Chinese companies have met the requirements. Mm. And in the meantime, the, the House of Representatives have passed the America Competes Act. That's still got to be reconciled, I think, with the, the Senate version of, of the bill. But what China's very much in focus in that as well, isn't it, Barry? Absolutely. Now, this is... Uh, this is going to go to President Biden, and one should remember that in November we have congressional elections here, and there's no difference between President Biden and President Trump in terms of their China policy. In fact, you could say that it's, uh, it's uh, even tougher now. But this uh, China Competes Act, it includes $55 billion for semiconductor promotion in the United States. It also is heavy on human rights. It's heavy on defense-related Chinese industry. It is a hodgepodge of 3,000 pages. 
it will, as you suggest, have to be reconciled because the Senate version was passed several months ago. But the fact is, something will pass and it will go to the president and he will be glad to sign it. It really makes it more difficult for the United States and China to have normal business relations. So, Andrew and Carlos, what do, what do you make of this? It had a big impact on the markets here yesterday, particularly Wuxi Biologics, but that wasn't the only one. There were, there were others, and it, it did impact sentiment overall didn't it, in the markets. Yeah, I think it was the, the surprise element of it. It was something we hadn't really heard of before. Um, Wuxi Biological then held a, a, a press conference, and we did see the stock start to recover before it was suspended. Um, they were explaining that a lot of this is just because of COVID, that the US inspectors can't actually go and visit plants at the moment. So it's another sort of COVID-related uh, incident. Um, but, you know, each of these companies will have to you know, be speaking with the, their American counterparts and doing the best that they can to, uh, to see themselves removed. I mean, I think the, the management was clear in, in saying that being on this uh, unverified list didn't mean that you were automatically going to end up on the entity list, which is a far more problematic issue. Um, but, you know, we also had comments yesterday from the Trade Department about the, uh, the Chinese not fulfilling their uh, trade obligations under the Part 1 Pact, um, and we haven't even got anywhere near the Part 2 negotiations. So I think the trade war is in a little bit of an abeyance at the moment, but it's something that's still there, you know, like the sort of Dramocles overhanging the market. Yeah, Andrew, I really do agree with what you've just said, and, and it's a sort of Damocles over the market, but uh, just to go back to that uh, phase one trade deal, the Peterson Institute uh, is, is saying now that the Chinese only did 60% of what they were going to do, and there were supposed to be that $200 billion of additional imports from the United States was to, take the, was to go back to the levels of 2017. Well, if you do it that way, says the Peterson Institute, they have made absolutely nothing in terms of fulfilling their commitments. This was in energy, this was in uh, manufacturing goods, and this was in agriculture. So that's a pretty bad sign, and I don't think that yet has gotten the attention that it will get here in the States. So is the Biden administration under pressure to take an even harder line on, on China? Because the trade deficit with China, despite all of this, was up last year another $45 billion to, to $355 billion. Uh, yeah, and well, absolutely. It's under a lot of pressure to do that and add in the human rights, which is all the talk now as the Olympic Games go on uh, about the Uyghurs. So you've got a hardening United States attitude towards China. There's no other way to look at it. Carlos? Yes, let's cut through all the noise. Um, Biden, second year in office, he has to pivot towards foreign policy, as Trump did during his second year in office. Trump focused on trade with his U.S.-China trade war. It's not working. Biden will probably have to focus away from trade um, and towards restraining Chinese companies from accessing U.S. technology and U.S. capital markets, as well as all of, all of the developments on the human rights fronts that we've observed. So it's been our view since uh, quite a few months now that geopolitical risks will be a major driver of volatility in 2022. So what, what comes next then after the phase one trade deal? Or really, is, is, is any hope of maybe something else uh, succeeding that off the table now? Well, I think the problem is that you've also, whilst you know, that's you know, running in the background, you've also got the fact that President Xi is looking to, to reform the Chinese economy. Uh, this dual circulation and common prosperity is, is partly putting China on a, on a kind of war footing so that it's less impacted by foreign 
uh, trade pacts or things like that so that it's more self-sufficient. That's what he's aiming to try and do. Um, so, uh, you know, as far as investors are concerned, it means that, you know, if you're going to invest in China, and there are lots of opportunities there, but you've got to make sure that you understand the companies and that the companies are performing in line realistically with what Beijing wants. Carlos, could, could we get an extension or some sort of something to follow the phase one trade deal, or is there not much hope of that? In fact, with inflation being so high in the U.S., I would not be surprised if they decide to selectively drop the tariffs on specific types of Chinese goods. Of course, I do not think Biden will want to completely outrule the possibility of using trade um, as, as a tool, um, but it's just not, not working for them. So I think any f potential phase two will be a lot more pragmatic in terms of trade. And as I mentioned, they are going to focus on other punitive measures to ensure that Chinese companies um, are falling in line with, with U.S. expectations. But that, that's something that's expected. As Andrew was saying, China is gearing up um, to a much more challenging external environment. Uh, I mean, I, fe I feel like after COVID, most major economies around the world have identified supply chain disruptions as a major risk. So I think everyone is doing the same. The Europeans are doing the same, investing in semiconductors. Um, and so it is going to create some risks, but also opportunities um, for investors out there. Now, we've got some important data coming out on Thursday from the U.S. Consumer price inflation is expected to rise 7.3% from a year ago, a four-decade high. And um, Barry, interest rate markets are now pricing in a 40% plus chance of six rate hikes this year and also a 35% chance that the one in March is going to be 50 basis points. What, what do you see? You know, my own view is, Peter, that uh, the Fed is going to move very cautiously. I think that would be a stunner for the markets if you go up 50 basis points. It'll be 25. As to how many, it'll depend on how the economy responds and how the investment community responds. We're seeing volatility in the equity market. I think that's going to continue. It's not um, insignificant that the 10-year uh, bond in the United States is creeping up just under 2%, and it's going to go still higher. So it's difficult time for investors, and I think the Fed will nonetheless be very cautious as it tightens policy. Andrew Carlos, Peter Schiff, the well-known CEO of hedge fund Euro-Pacific Asset Management, said this week that the price of oil could peak at $300 a barrel, and as a result, the Fed will lose its fight against inflation. What do you think? Well, I mean, everything is possible, but I, I think, uh, I think in the in the in the short term, it's unlikely to go that far. And I, you've got to take into account that you know, increasingly, people are looking at alternative energy sources. So, um, it, it will become that for some people who remain, you know, locked into using oil, that 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 will become a a serious factor as a, as production of oil, you know, declines and uh, people will go to other alternative energy sources. Um, but I don't think it's going to really impact the, uh, the US Fed that much. Carlos, final thoughts from you. Yeah, mostly uh, worried about um, the Asia Pacific, to be honest. Um, some of the largest net oil importers in the world are in this part of the continent, of the, of the globe. 
Uh, we have China, we have India, and anything above 90 US dollar per barrel puts significant strain on um, government finances. So we, uh, if, if, if indeed we see oil heading up towards 100, maybe over 100, um, with a prospect of, you know, potentially 50 basis points in March um, or more than four rates this year, I think that uh, complicates the macro outlook for Asia slightly. Um, but as, as our speakers today have mentioned, it still remains to be seen. $300 oil will be disastrous for Asia, wouldn't it? <laughs> disastrous indeed. Do, do you agree with Peter Schiff that the Fed is losing its fight against inflation? Um, I think the Fed understands that it only has control over the demand side of um, inflation. Um, on the supply front, unfortunately, there is nothing that hiking interest rates can do to resolve supply chain disruption. So it has to be a coordinated effort between um, the Fed, but also other parts of the US government if they really want to win the battle against inflation. Okay, thank you very much. You heard there Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director of Outset Global, and our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in the markets this morning, stocks moving further ahead now. The SX200 in Australia is up 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen half a percent. And shortly after the open in South Korea, the Cosby is up about a third of a percent. Futures markets are indicating a gain of about 450 points or so for the Hang Seng at the open. Gold is trading at uh, $1,825 an ounce. And that's all important oil price, not $300 yet, but it is $91.31 a barrel. Thank you for listening this morning. Stay tuned. Radio 3's COVID update is coming up after the news. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy. Sunny intervals during the day, maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. And then the outlook is for sunny intervals with temperatures rising slightly in the next couple of days. It's 16 degrees right now, 76% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shrofsky with the half-hour news. The nominations for this year's Oscars have been announced with The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion, leading the field. It's nominated in 12 categories, including Best Picture and Best Director. The BBC's Sophie Long has more. A man was made by patience and the odds against him. Jane Campion is the first woman to get more than one Oscar nomination for Best Director. If she wins for The Power of the Dog, her tense Western starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst, who were both nominated for their roles, she would be only the third woman to win in the category in the award's 94-year history. Mama says if we went across the water, they wouldn't understand the way we talk. If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. Kenneth Branagh's semi-autobiographical Belfast was nominated for Best Picture, with Dame Judi Dench being shortlisted for Best Supporting Actress. The leading Republican in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, has criticized the party for censuring two members of Congress who were critical of the former President Donald Trump. The Republican National Committee took action against Liz Cheney and Adam Kitzinger, the only two Republicans to serve on the House Committee to investigate the storming of the Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters. Mr. McConnell said the Republican Party should not be singling out members who held different views and criticized its characterization of the events of January the 6th as legitimate political discourse. Well, let me give you my view of what happened January the 6th. And we're all, we're here. We're here. We, we, we saw what happened. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power 
after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That's what it was. The French President Emmanuel Macron has outlined what he sees as a way to ease the crisis over Ukraine, following talks on consecutive days, first in Moscow and then in Kyiv. At a news conference with President Volodymyr Zelensky, he said both the Ukrainian leader and President Putin had committed to implementing the stalled Minsk Accords. These aim to resolve the Russian-backed separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine that began in 2014. Speaking in Berlin after meeting his German and Polish counterparts, President Macron said there were uh, very common objectives for the way forward. We will continue to act in the coming weeks with simple objectives. The first is to avoid war. Peace and stability on the European continent is our greatest treasure, and we must maintain that. The second thing is to consolidate and defend the unity of Europeans and our allies at all times. Russia has massed more than 100,000 troops on its border with Ukraine, prompting accusations from the U.S. and European nations that it's preparing for an invasion. And that's the news from RTHK.